to the New Music Conversation podcast right behind us. I'm your host, Brandon Daniel, of the Seattle band BD and the Sheiks. Here we talk to recording artists the way we often do when we're playing a show together, giving you, the listener, an opportunity to hear your favorite artists or your next favorite artist speak candidly about their music, process, challenges and limitations, things that suck, and things that are amazing. Today, my guest is Guida from the band the kingdom of the holy sun uh psychedelic in nature uh guido doesn't really believe in genre titles so i don't want to pigeonhole them but you be the judge of what they do he was a uh, interesting mind and um it's good to talk to so let's get into this one before we do we gotta tell you about our sponsor today as always, we are sponsored by Blumenstein Audio. Check out Blumenstein Audio for the ultimate fidelity single driver speakers, subwoofers, and audio accessories from music lovers. Blumenstein is delivering a new line of killer speakers for this holiday season and new year, like the paired speakers, the Marlin, their full range unit, the Triton, and the Benthic bass unit. They've handcrafted their entire line here in Washington State since 2006, from bamboo and birch woods receive a 10 percent discount on your order when you enter the promo code bd for brandon daniel on checkout at blumensteinaudio.com that's b-l-u-m-e-n-s-t-e-i-n audio.com all right now for kingdom of the holy sun great um i don't really have that many other hobbies <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know i just run out of ideas you know like it takes me a couple years to make a record i think what it is is this is actually the first band mm-hmm. i've been in mm-hmm. and really? so for about like uh i think after i got to high school started writing music and um i just I had trouble finding maybe um, musicians that were into the same thing I was into. Yeah. So I just um, just try to do it all myself, basically. And so it kind of made sense because you can either sort of hold out or just do it yourself. Uh-huh. And um, also it cuts out a lot of problems with people showing up. Yeah. You know, musicians are very unreliable. Yeah. Unsavory types. Right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, myself included, of course. Yeah. Um, so it was easy for me just to, uh, just try to do as much as I can myself. And I did mm-hmm. that for honestly about 10 years. Oh, wow. So I've been writing and recording just in my own capacity. Oh, okay. Yeah. For just, so I have like a back catalog of, I don't know, several hundred songs. 
Did you, I mean, from high school on, did you stay, were you always kind of in the specific genre that you're in now? Or? I don't know what genre I'm in, technically. Uh-huh. I mean, it's used sometimes because it's a convention. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. As far as like, nomenclatures go, as far as like naming styles of music, I mean, I think it's same in the sense of it's always like, but it comes from the same place. Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, I think I've always stayed within certain, probably genres based on influences. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to be making like a jazz or samba album anytime right, soon. Right, right. Because it's not sort of my, it's not my forte. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I have one, but I mean, it's not something that I can really, that I know anything about it, to be able to even try to do that. So just from the the start it, it you know it's just based on what you're listening to and what you know how to play yeah and who you're influenced by that you sort of create what you do and yeah. so I've just I've done it from that perspective basically um, yeah how did do, are you hearing yourself okay in the yeah I can yeah sit like that kind of range yeah sure. yeah uh, I want you to be comfortable but yeah yeah there perfect perfect yeah. um well, what were you inspired to start writing from? Um, I don't feel it's like something necessarily uh, voluntary. I don't know. Um, it's not something I can probably speak for other types that mm-hmm. create other forms of art or even the same. But for me, it was always been, um, it, you feel compelled to. Yeah. As opposed to it's something that you voluntarily choose. I don't really mm. feel as if this was ever like a choice. Mm-hmm. It's just something that um, you feel that it's in you and it has to come out in some form or another. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it's it's basically come from that perspective. Is that like a first thing in the? Is that have you noticed that the habit of of that being compelled? Like, did it does it hit you and you know at a certain time in the day? Does it does it? Um, are there traceable moments in your, you know, I'm, I'm speaking whether it's back then or even now, what, what was it that, when does the, the feeling come most frequently? Is there? I, w- I think if anything, if I were to probably characterize it, it's more of about, um, I think I've learned to sort of deal with it. So, um, that, you know, sometimes whenever something, when you, you, you come upon an idea you know the best thing to do if if, you, if if the opportunity is possible to sort of take advantage of it and sort of explore that idea mm-hmm. as opposed to waiting around because you might forget. Mm. So um, I just know sometimes I've, I've, I've learned after a while that I know when something's working and when it isn't. Mm. I've gone through phases though too though where I feel as if I, I, it's self-imposed like pressure or expectations to do something in that moment because mm. maybe I have time to. Mm-hmm. So I will force myself to do it, mm-hmm. just as an exercise, mm-hmm. and then you may say it's it's a complete shit what you do. But then you may come back a month later and, and then say, okay, that actually sounds like something that could become something good. Mm-hmm. So I think it's more the idea of, you know, take advantage of every uh, situation you have to create and just try to um, let it out regardless what happens. Yeah. And I mean, it's a matter of perspective anyway, regardless whether it's, it's actually uh, useful for, mm-hmm. for like a song or not. And I think actually sometimes the, the exercise of creativity sometimes may be more important than the goal. 
Yeah. Too. So it's also from that point of view. Yeah. So, yeah, it's basically just. You know, uh, um, I would have to say it, it's about uh, know what you do and under what situations, under what circumstances you've learned from the past when things do work mm-hmm. and, and learn from that and then just try to just when when you get that feeling or vibe again then sort of go with it again it's, it becomes a, it's probably more instinctual yeah because I do think that although creative creativity can be something that is um, you know uh, evocative and all these artsy fartsy things that come with it at the same time there's still structure and there's still organization so it's like a balance of both. So, yeah. So I definitely think that I, I see it from that point of view. Well, I wonder if, um, you know, creating as much as you do, um, do you ever wake up with a song in your head that you don't actually want to write, but it's already kind of writing itself for you? And that just happened to me the other day. Like, I woke up with a hip-hop song in my head. Yeah. And it was like, cool idea, but... I don't actually want to make this song. <laughs> Did you record it? No, I didn't. No, I didn't. I, I ran away from it. Yeah, um, I, I, I think a lot of times too when I, um, when I do do whatever I do, however you want to characterize it, mm-hmm. uh, I don't really think about melodies a lot of times. Um, I would say that often it's the case that I have like basically something I want to accomplish. Mm. So, um, mm-hmm. So instead, I don't usually start, or rarely start with melodies per se. Instead, it's more about like, I've always liked this band, this song they have, and I want to be able to capture that and then combine it with something that maybe doesn't fit necessarily, mm-hmm. but to see, somehow bring those disparate, opposing sort of sounds together into something that is cohesive and where they do sort of reconcile, to, tr- to attempt to try to reconcile those differences and that tension. Mm. then even if you don't reconcile them it sometimes makes good music sometimes if yeah you, if you can bring things together that superficially or at least um, it's accepted that you know there's certain precepts that say these things don't go together yeah and then you bring them together just because just because you can mm-hmm. so it some of it stems from like I, I probably realized this after the fact but um, it comes from definitely more, a, a more postmodern approach to creating music so and I do I do consciously now that I understand that that's most likely what I do what I do I still I know that and sometimes if I do question myself then I go back to go back to that and go well these things really don't really matter I mean if people say it's this way or you know it's I'll do it regardless just because it's I mean, it's it, that's what's interesting about creativity is because the, in theory there are no rules. You're only limited by, you know, things maybe that are out of your control. But otherwise, who, you know, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. So, I would say it's like that. Well, I mean, it makes sense because just you saying that you don't start from a melodic place. Mm-hmm. Um. Because when I listened to your music, which I, I really enjoyed your new record, it was um. You know the 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 thing that stood out to me the most, I just think, overall, was rhythm. So yeah. it's like every song was based on rhythm. Now that you sure. say it wasn't based on melody, it totally makes sense. But you know you did a nice job of weaving melodies anyway. Yeah. So, I mean that's really interesting. Um, and and in, on, 
in a certain way I can relate because it wasn't until like five years ago uh, that I got this kind of uh, musical role model that you know said to me focus on your melody you know because I, I think I was forgetting my mel- my melodies which can happen if you're really influenced by staccato artists you know who like everything ever since the 70s it's been totally possible to have a very staccato uh, vocal delivery it was unusual then and then it became like a niche of pop music you know that kept popping up over and over and over again and for some reason that's what I got interested in and and I had to re re uh kind of learn how to think melodically and uh when I did I was greatly benefited by it but that at the same time you already kind of doesn't seem like you need to do that because you already have the the awareness to build in your melodies whether you start with them or not yeah I mean I think too as far as what you mentioned about rhythm um, I basically try to um approach a song also with the idea that um, the drums in a song should be very catchy in itself and have mm-hmm. have its own personality mm-hmm. and so um, that's why I try to make like a lot of that the drum parts and the songs their own identity and it's a lot of times it's drawing on bands that have probably done that in the past too where they they understand there's something kind of um, it's part of the subconscious in Western, you know, Anglo-American music. Mm. These rhythms that, that we all recognize, you know, that's the same reason why Jesus and Mary Chain uses some of these rhythms that was used, Phil Spector songs, because I think at least that maybe they understand that beat and they know everyone knows that beat. Mm. So as soon as one of their songs starts, everyone regardless if you know their music or not, you're still going to somehow recognize that beat because everyone knows those songs from Phil Spector. Like the boom, boom, boom. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's definitely like that. So like one of the songs we have um, has, you know, the typical Bo Diddley beat. Yeah. And it's because um, everyone knows that beat. There's There's been so many songs that have been based on that. So, and it, it, it's a really great beat too. Yeah. So that was the idea is to sort of bring in things that everyone in theory can relate to from a rhythmic point of view. Yeah. Um, Have you ever looped a beat and then tried to write to it? I'd actually do that a lot. I tried that. (laughs) I tried that last year. It It didn't work for me at all. I mean, you know. It works pretty well for me because, you know, I don't really jam with anybody when I write songs. It's usually just me sitting down hammering out something. Yeah. So instead, not, not, it's not always the case, but, Mm -hmm. I don't know how, you know, what percentage-wise, maybe a third or 25% of the songs do start with a beat. Yeah. And it's because I heard a song, there's some, you know, obscure 60s band I really like a lot from, I don't know, like France. Yeah. And they have this real interesting beat, and you think, wow, I think I could really use that. Yeah. And then the song then can build upon that. Yeah. And the thing, too, is once you're locked in to the beat, in some ways it can be limiting, but it also can... It can also be something positive too, though, where you're 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 already imposing that limitation that you have to work around that beat. Mm-hmm. But it can also be, I think, something really positive. Again, sort of, 
maybe test your creativity or see what you're capable of. And even if you're not necessarily successful and nothing comes of the song, I think along just the exercise of doing it um, is is interesting. Yeah. Um, have you had that experience in the last three years, though, where you, since you did a lot of writing alone, which I, I totally understand, because even though I, I had bands all along, like I, I still would uh, until recently I, I would write completely alone and then bring it to the band but what did you have the experience when you brought it to the band that there were some songs that just they seem to translate at home but they don't translate now in the band experience I think a lot of times it probably depends on um, the musicians you work with um, I think um, like our drummer now uh, Christian is definitely one of the best drummers I've played with for several reasons. Um, and I mean, one of the reasons is because if I come in with a beat, I'm not really technically a drummer, but I understand how drums work and how mm -hmm. beats put together. Mm -hmm. And he needs to fill in the blanks. And then he interprets that and then sort of fleshes it out. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's definitely cases where, yeah, it doesn't. And then we try to change it. But then when I go back and listen to the demo, then I go, yeah, we should still try to do that regardless. Ah, it was. Like, you hear that it was going to work if you just stuck with it. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. I think it's because since the demos can be worked out prior to uh, recording and getting the band to work it up, that um, the whole idea is it's, it's already there. That It's already mm -hmm. the idea is there, and it's not necessarily about the, the parts it's more about the combination of all these parts together so that's why it's it's important to have musicians around you especially a drummer in the situation that can mm -hmm. can can do that mm -hmm. basically and um, that and that was probably even the case for a lot of the songs we recently recorded mm -hmm. um, we were in the studio three times in Portland this year and that was a couple of cases where we were working up the songs um, and with Christian we had some things we had to work out, but he was definitely able to sort of rise to the challenge because I imagine, too, from a drummer's perspective, it must be sometimes a challenge to work with someone who's not necessarily a drummer but still mm -hmm. says this is how it has to be and stuff. So, But it can, it's probably also um, rewarding for him to be faced with this challenge and then sort of be able to be successful at it because mm -hmm. I think he does do an amazing job with, with that role. And what, what was the Portland studio that you were recording in? Um, we uh, recorded with Colin Hegna. He's the bass yeah. player from Brian Jonestown Massacre. Yeah. I've known Colin since before he was in BJM. He's been a long, long time. When I, when I um, started at like 21, Colin's best friend, Ryan Sumner, was my first Portland drummer and my first guy to like introduced me to everybody in the community including Colin mm -hmm. and I did my second EP with Colin but our, our mutual friend passed away that year um, he was an amazing drummer it was a funny um, connection there um, so you you record at Revolver then? that's right yeah yeah oh, that's super cool yeah yeah he's really easy guy to work with too it's a cool studio, and I was in. I was when I was in it. It was they were still building it out. It took them about a year to like, f like mm -hmm. fully build out their studio. But then the end result was really good. Yeah, it's a really nice studio, and um, yeah, it's a good location. Good location. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
How did you come to, to meet? Um... Um, I was at a Brian Dunstone Masker show in um, New York City. Oh, wow. And there was an after party show where there was another show taking place, mm-hmm. and the band was hanging out there. Mm-hmm. And I met him, and we were just talking about Portland. And yeah. I've been to Portland before, of yeah. course. And we were just talking about bars and restaurants and shit. Uh-huh. And he'd been to a lot of the same places. Uh huh. And then um, I think we were trying to set up a show with his other band, or his Federale. Federale, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which we ended up playing with him um, afterwards. But uh, he's really busy too, so it did take a while for him to. To fit us in, oh yeah, schedule. Yeah, totally. So we were just really lucky this year that it worked out, and I still actually want to go back and record more because we have basically an album and a half. Yeah. So the goal for two thousand sixteen. Yeah. Two thousand sixteen is to just try to release two album full length albums yeah. in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, whether we have enough money for um, both on vinyl or just one, I still really want to do that because I I still I'm sitting on really a lot of songs right now that I really wanna, <laughs> I want to get them out of the way yeah I want to get this like I want to hurry up and get it out of my system uh-huh. so then I can move on sort of to the next thing right so and so that's why I'm in, I want I really want to get these songs because I I think also I think also in terms of when you write in a certain period sometimes there's a certain mood that permeates the music mm-hmm. and so that's why sometimes it's good to sort of have all these recorded together because it does sort of represent something. Mm-hmm. Um, I might be lying to you, maybe it doesn't because maybe one of the songs we have is actually an older song that was recorded, but nobody knows it. So yeah. So I guess it doesn't really matter in that sense. But I still want to record these other ones though, um, yeah. and uh, I, I was really happy with what we recorded, and I think it's gonna I think it's gonna sound really really good. How many songs are you? trying to get out of the way um <clears throat> let's say we've recorded 12 so far with him mm-hmm. um depending on how much we'll be able to fit on the vinyl we could use a couple more for the next one and then i probably have seven or eight more at least oh okay okay all right yeah. i was just picturing you know maybe 30 to 100 like <laughs> at the beginning of the conversation when you were where you're saying that's the kind of back catalog that you had built up yeah but uh that the back catalog is thinning out now and it, and, and a lot of it is current the, i would have to say that um, everything with a band with the exception of maybe uh one song was written specifically for this for this for this project before the project started no everything was written as soon as Basically, when I decided to to start this band, uh-huh. I recorded I think about twelve, fourteen songs right. for the first session, uh-huh. and so then everything after that, yeah, has been solely for just this project, without the exception of one song. What is 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 performing live a uh, a smaller priority to you, or just as important? Um. Well, we have played. I think 73 times mm-hmm. in the last three years we've gone on two tours we're actually going back on tour in April mm-hmm. um, I think it's more of just a balance um, mm-hmm. I think they serve different functions in a band mm-hmm. I think performance is, is definitely um, important for I think any any band especially in this day and age where um, the value of music has evaporated yeah so there there's obviously some shift taking place where if people 
or not interested in buying physical copies, then there has to be something about a live show that makes people want to see you. Yeah, numbers are, I think, uh, better than they've been in a long time. Yeah. For so, live show attendance. So I think that it makes you definitely reevaluate how you do what you do live. And yeah. I think over the course of what we've done, you know, you learn a lot from that and then you um, improve upon what you do. So it's, mm-hmm. I would say it's just always like a, a learning process because you never know, you never know um, what to expect. Yeah. So it's, it, that's why it's, I mean, it's a completely different animal because, I mean, it's also um, an actual live band playing together mm-hmm. and in a setting and it, and it has its own factors and people's moods and so forth and the venue you play into and the audience reaction to that can affect how you play the music you play as well. So I think from that point of view, it's it's definitely a priority, uh, without a doubt. It is, it is. And we enjoy playing with a lot of the bands too because we've we've had the opportunity to play with a lot of bands um, that, I, that I've been a real big fan of for right. a while. So right. alone from that point of view, that's another reason why live performance is really great, especially when you play with bands. I think our fourth or fifth show we played with um, the band from um, Southern California called Spindrift. Yeah. And I had been a big fan of their music and to be able to play with them for me was was at any rate a really big deal. Yeah. Because of how much I really really enjoy their music. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm very familiar. The reason I ask is because you're such a prolific writer. I was wondering if that was a bigger priority to you with the creation of the music. Um... But it seems like you give, when you got into it, you got into it for the full experience, not just for, there are some musicians that just want to record, record, record. And that's cool. Um, But sometimes that also means that they don't enjoy the live performance experience as much. Yeah, I I definitely enjoy it. I think that a a live performance is definitely... um, it's, a, it's more of a cathartic experience mm-hmm. and I've always thought that um, I feel better after the show's over mm-hmm. um, so I definitely think of it in terms of it being sort of the way the purpose of almost the way theater served for mm-hmm. the ancient Greeks with it being cathar- uh, ca- um, a catharsis so from that alone I mean that's also very rewarding too because it's a really good feeling to have, having played a show I get more out of that than actually playing mm which is bizarre but it's just because it's it's a release you get more out of having finished played as opposed to in medias res in the, hmm. middle, in the middle of playing I'm trying to think if I if I if yeah. I relate to that I mean you know in the in a in a linear way I don't know I think I enjoy I think the little kid entertainer in me enjoys the spotlight yeah. And going, look what I can do. And not in a guitar solo wailing way, but like a, yeah. hey, I made this for you kind of way. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely that aspect as well. Um, but it seems like, the for me at least, the greatest rush is just walking off stage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it'd be an interesting question to ask some of our band member friends who who consider themselves just musicians. They don't consider themselves writers. They mm-hmm. consider themselves musicians. And 
and I, I'm, you know, I sit down mostly with songwriters, so um, I haven't really got that opportunity to ask one of them that, you know, we tend to have really good music conversations when we play shows with one another and we like one another and or like you said at an after party or a, or a, any kind of party where there's musicians hanging out we get into fun music conversations but I don't know there's something about doing this show that's like it's hyper focused yeah so let's just say you know you brought your drummer and then I could have asked him about his experience performing live because everybody who performs live regularly seems to really enjoy it and yet you know we we could be on the road with each other for a month and still not really know why our drummer enjoys it just as much as we do you know that's true I think too there's also the opportunity to which also differs from a recording where a recording is something that's it's it's um it's final mm-hmm. whereas a live performance is a chance to sort of offer a different interpretation of the music mm-hmm. so there's also that aspect too oh yeah and so I think that's why we've occasionally have tried to stretch things out with live performances as opposed to what we would record is because it also then offers a different interpretation of, of the song yeah um, and I think that's that can also be very rewarding from an audience point of view yeah so and I, I like that I'm trying to get into it even more um, time will tell you know I heard a really great quote from John Mellencamp which is embarrassing and surprising mm. <laughs> both parts but it actually was a good idea he said that you know he's had a long career unfortunately and uh, he he said that he likes to adjust every tour to fit the style of his current album. So, you know, with his kind of place, like you only, well, even for us, really, I mean, you only go on tour when you got a new record to push. And uh, so, you know, since he's not the same John Mellencamp he was in the 80s or whatever, you know, this, this he adjusts all the hits that he has to fit the new record. And I thought that would be a fun exercise and it actually proved to be because I had some songs from my last record that aren't going to really fit in the same suitcase with, with our new um, style, if you will. And, and by taking John Cougar Mellencamp's idea and applying it to our own shit, it was, it was, I loved it. It was really fun to reinterpret Mm-hmm. the songs it's like you're remixing yourself so to speak exactly yeah mm-hmm. and it was also interesting playing wise like you know mm-hmm. playing with sounds playing with your instrument figuring like you said remixing figuring out what to readjust mm-hmm. but it sounds like you do that with an extended jam in a sense yeah I mean again we're very limited how often we do that but mm-hmm. again I think I want to move more into that but I do think that that yeah that serves that role mm-hmm. um, and it can um, I'm, I'm kind of on maybe the opposite end of the spectrum where I think that um, I don't think that 
you have no responsibility to anyone to make the songs cohesive when you play live mm. at all whatsoever. There are some bands that do exactly what you're saying. I know um, I saw Depeche Mode one time, and actually a couple of times, and one of the tours, they did the same thing where they had taken some of their songs and reinterpreted them for the live setting, and maybe they did it to update them because a decade had passed or whatever. Yeah. And um, I don't know necessarily if I like that. But yeah. But, I mean, it was still interesting that they did it nonetheless. Sure. So, but I'm kind of more of the, the, the opinion, though, that you should do what you do and don't worry about continuity because um, if you think there's not continuity, it's possible someone might think that there is. Yeah. And there's continuity in the sense of it's still the same people playing all the songs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's that's enough. Yeah. It doesn't have to be. I don't. In that sense, I don't. I completely. Well, there's definitely there. There definitely it is danger in that way of overdoing it, and maybe in that instance for you, they they overdid it. You know, yeah. and and. I mean, when I when I, when a song is recorded, I usually feel like it's done and and that's what I want to play live and like you said if if there if there's anything I was just going to you know add a, a, a few variations to it for the live show that make it special live yeah. but I don't know there's something about playing with a an older song especially in a case like us I and mean, we don't have top 40 hits that like you know a hundred thousand people are turning out to see at every show you know you know you you play jack and diane this is one (laughs) the way that they remember it uh so we have that freedom to to you know adjust to the audience for instance like i I, and this kind of leads to my next question for you as i'm wondering how much you uh, find that you adjust um, the song, you know, your set list, your what you're playing to your live audience. Like, do you do you set list it, or do you pay attention to the audience and go, no, maybe we'll throw this one in here? Well, I think that depending on the arrangement, I think there's several songs that um, that have been recorded that we haven't play live just because uh-huh. maybe the limitations of yeah of what we're able to do live as far as arrangements because I'm kind of a stickler for arrangements so I will avoid playing certain songs if I don't think we can do the song justice live the way kind of it should be and yeah because I think that um, sometimes what makes us for at least for me a song um, that I create um, interesting is is the arrangement so if you play it live and you can't have that arrangement, for me it's 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 just it's not gonna work. And right. I refuse to do it basically. Mm-hmm. And which is a shame, of course, but you know, who knows, maybe we'll get better at what we do and be able to, to do these things because we're definitely with like keys or whatever. I, I mean we always have organ, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but you know, even like with a lot of auxiliary percussion, uh, one of the new songs we recorded in fact, we recorded like with a djembe and, and congas and things like that yeah, yeah and it turned out really really well it would present a problem if we try to pull it off because yeah we'd probably need another drummer right and i don't know if yeah if we're ready for that necessarily mm-hmm. um 
for several reasons, but yeah, so it does affect what songs we play because of that. But I think it's okay at least at this at this point. I would in theory I would best case scenario I'd rather want to be able to play all these things mm-hmm. like that. But we'll just have to wait and sort of see how things develop if that's gonna sort of work out or not. A lot of it's yeah. more of a logistic issue. Well what 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 I meant was uh when you perform live, do you create a set list or do you play to the mood of the audience? It's usually, it's it's 99, almost 100% of the time it's, it's with a set list without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's also because waste songs, sometimes they, they flow better into mm-hmm. one another. Sure. And um, I like it too when some bands too if there's a slow song the next one's usually more up tempo so there's yeah. a lot more variety so there is some of that too because you don't want to have maybe several slower songs in a row yeah because you can lose people's uh, attention so instead to vary the songs throughout so there is sort of this variety so I, I think I approach it from more of that, that point of view mm-hmm. and um, we do go through phases though where we do play a somewhat similar set sure and um, which I also sometimes consciously do too, mm-hmm. because I kind of like I like doing that too, where there's certain songs that work really well as openers, there's certain mm-hmm. songs that work really well as closers, yeah, and then the middle you can work that out. Yeah, yeah. But there's just certain songs that lend themselves better to those places in, in a set list, and and I do put a lot of definitely thought in that because you have to, first song has to be something always that grabs people's attention, so. I mean, without a doubt, it's there's a lot of thought put into that, and I do keep track of all the the set list we have. Yeah. So I know too to I can rotate something out because some of the people in the band want to play some songs. Yeah. And I have to remind them we've played that song forty times now. <laughs> we should play something different. Uh. You know, so that's that's another reason too. It's good to keep up with these things because you know then you are maybe playing something too much than you realize you were. All right. You know, so... So, uh, it, so you, you tend to stick with a set list for a while, or, or yeah. do you... Uh, you do. So it's not like yeah. something you might curate it differently for tomorrow night's show, because tonight's show informed you that, you know, you were getting this out of out of the set list. No, usually not. I mean, it's mm. usually just because... Um, it's also because too there's there's certain sets that work really well together and sometimes especially if you have to change guitars because I mm. switch between six string and twelve string. Sure. Sometimes you will put a couple of songs together to have twelve string just so you don't have to switch as much. There's a lot of downtime in between songs. Right. So um, that's that actually comes into play also, but it's also while after you do maybe ten or twelve shows, everyone in the band's ready. Yeah, let's do another one. And then I'll go back to the drawing board and then redo it because it also makes it more interesting when you do that type of thing. Sure. When you do change gears. And I think since we know on, that this tour is going to be on the horizon in April, it'll probably allow us to sort of work in more new material that we've never played because a great, I would say, majority of the material we've, we've recorded um, has never been played live. Even what we recorded with Colin, we've recorded. Um, what we've recorded we've been playing a couple of those songs live but a lot of them we haven't and I don't know if we ever will mm. but that's not really the purpose there's for example a song on our, our, the EP that we released on vinyl The Return of the Sun Kings 
It's a song that we've never played live and we've never rehearsed it as a whole band even. But that's that's okay. I mean, maybe one of these days we'll get around to it. I mean, it's part of it's the arrangements, a little difficult. Um, and it, it's with harmonium and we've used harmonium before on stage before. Um, but I don't know if I'm willing to sort of bring it out for every show for one song. Again. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a great instrument and it, you know, visually it has something, you know, but... Yeah, we'll see. So when is that um, album? I mean, I, you may have already answered this question, but do you have a, a and you have the April goal for touring? Do you have a record release goal like June or whatever for the record you're almost finished with now? Well, I have. To, <clears throat> I will be mixing the album. Uh, with Colin in about like two weeks if all works out the artwork's almost done mm-hmm. and then the mastering shouldn't take too long and then once it gets submitted it depends on what the waiting list is yeah so hopefully as soon as possible yeah but I don't I, goal before the tour then yeah or maybe at the beginning of the tour that would be really good and um, I think it's also it's, that's one thing that's kind of annoying but it's I'm really impatient so a lot of things that go into music have nothing to do with creativity yeah and it's just you're relying on other people and other um, systems to work the way they're supposed to and so just like this the CP it was actually recorded a year ago but just due to how long things take right and with with the vinyl pressing yeah that that was a really big problem it's just did you do the vinyl did you deal with the vinyl uh, pressing yourself um, partially. Yeah. yeah. They can be pretty fucking frustrating. Yeah. I think I've been through two that I don't want to go back to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, um, we were happy with the result, mm-hmm. um, which was good. And, yeah. Um, I think it's just that you have to maybe sometimes accept it as being part of the, uh, part of the process and just go with it, which I've tried to do. Yeah. And, um, but it's, it's just a... Yeah, it could be about as much fun as fighting a medical bill. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I think I'd almost rather fight a medical bill, <laughs> just alone because of uh, what what's involved. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And it can get pretty f- confusing. You know, you have to dialogue back and forth with the uh, the producer or producers when it comes to like mastering and everything. Yeah, I, I mean, really hope I don't have to do that again for a while. <laughs> I think too with um, with the EP uh, I worked with Matt Brown he's the one mm-hmm. who recorded us and he mixed it and he and I basically were in charge for producing it and with Colin I think I'm either sharing production credit with him or I'm going to get production credit I'm not sure at this point but um, well, I think when you get that involved and involved with everything that goes on um, and you're that committed to it that even makes it more even more of important not just being the songwriter but also you want to just ensure that it it becomes exactly what it should be yeah at least control. at least that there's no rough edges that that bother your ear yeah and sometimes you have to I guess know when to sort of let it go too yeah so you can pick things apart too much sure um, so I think that I think I've learned to sort of accept it for what it is to some degree because I do believe in this idea that there's no such thing as creating something perfect. 
it's just a, it's always compromise at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So I think as long as things in the grand scheme of things are what you expected, I think that's all you can really hope for. And there's always going to be things that are not going to work out. But mm-hmm. I mean, you read some of the interviews with bands that make really great albums, and they say after the fact they weren't happy with this and that, and it's yeah, it's just something that's human instinct to never be satisfied. Well, and I think, you know, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of cases over the years where, you know, a, 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 a band might have their label coming down on them with like a, a deadline. deadline, and then so they have to turn over those songs that they weren't, they didn't feel was done, but their A&R guy takes a listen to them and says, yeah, you don't know, it's good enough, They're, they'll take it, you know, and, and, and we don't really have to deal with that too much these days and and it I'm grateful for that because I've dropped six songs at least over the last you know three years that I, that I recorded with the full intention to be on the album and they got you know that that babe those babies were almost born you know yeah. and I pulled a, a last minute abortion <laughs> abortion you aborted their songs <laughs> but because them. they they, they it happens sometimes that they just don't ever live up to what uh, you thought they would be. And uh, I'm speaking about songs. Um, <laughs> okay. But, you know, it's important, too. I mean, I really just don't want to release anything that just doesn't live up to it. And But it's like you said, sometimes you, you go back a couple of years later and you're like, well, that wasn't really that bad. But Because you just think that it, your perspective is always going to change. And... Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think that the further you get get away from things you've created, you sometimes have um, more understanding of the younger you or the who created it at the time. Mm-hmm. And those imperfections in the music also represent a part of you, and it's an extension of you. And so yeah, forth, so. and it sounds fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Well, thank you so much for doing this with me. We we quickly come up on our on our time, and and I really appreciate. Um, you wandering all the way out here to West Seattle to do this with me. Sure, no problem. Especially right. in the wind. <laughs> yeah, I know, it was crazy, right? <laughs> Alright, Thanks for listening to another episode. Check out uh, the links to our artists in the music description section of this podcast. You can find links there to uh, go buy their music. We also throw stuff up on the Twitter page with the handle at right behind us, spelled with a W. Go support and help make music profitable again so you can hear more from these talented musicians. You can find pics of our guests on Instagram. Just look up BD and the Sheiks. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe on your podcast app and write a review. Four or five stars is what we're looking for, so help us do that, and I'll keep bringing you more with these incredible talents. With that, I'll say, until the next episode.